Welcome to the latest episode of the Crude Street Podcast, a weekly discussion of science fiction, fantasy, publishing, and pretty much anything else of interest to its two rambling hosts. This week, we're delighted to be joined by Hugo, Nebula, Compton, Crook, Theodore Sturgeon, and Michael L. Prince Ward Award winner and National Book Award nominee, Paolo Bacigalupi, to discuss his work. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, Jonathan, and congratulations, Paolo. Today is the day, as we're recording this, that the New York Times came out with the great news about your new novel. You want to tell us about it, a recap? Uh, yeah. Um, it's, it's, hi, guys. It's good to be here. That's um, right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, uh, the, the New York Times just announced, uh, the, that I finally sold the water knife. I finally written and sold the water knife to Knopf. And, uh, um, it's, it's a, a huge relief to actually have this actually out and announced. Um, I've known it for about a month now and had to be sitting on it as we sort of got, you know, got to the point where we were ready to announce, uh, which is a little bit like, you know, having a girlfriend who won't acknowledge you in public. Um, <laughs> And so, yeah, things are, it feels very good and very real today, actually. Um, and I'm, yeah, hugely excited. So if you actually read the Water Knife is an adult novel. It'll be your first adult novel since The Wind-Up Girl. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, this is, I've I basically spent a lot of time focusing on my young adult uh, career uh-huh. and, uh, and have been sort of wandering in the weeds for, I had been sort of wandering in the weeds for quite a long time in terms of what I wanted to write next for adults. Mm-hmm. Um, and... What I found for my writing is that I, I really want to, I, I sort of need to have a purpose uh, for what I'm doing with my writing, and I need to have sort of an objective. And it took me a while to settle down and say, oh yeah, I'm really interested in climate change, I'm really interested in water scarcity. And uh, I think that the, 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 the starting point for that really was that I was down in Austin, Texas for ArmadilloCon a couple of years ago, uh-huh. and, uh, and it was... And uh, it w- they were in the middle of a huge drought. It was it was ridiculously hot, and uh, it was dead in the middle of summer. And it was also during the the presidential campaign stuff as well. And so Perry was starting to run for president, and uh, mm. and it was it was interesting because you know here Texas is in just this, the grip of this insane drought, which fits all of the models for what climate change is supposed to do to Texas, and. And you have Rick Perry sort of getting up and doing a prayer circle um, where everybody's supposed to pray for rain. And you think, this is when we lose. Um, if we mm. can't actually engage with the idea of climate change as a being a real thing, a real phenomenon that we have to engage with, and instead we're going to treat it um, as though it's a, instead we're going to treat it as though it's some sort of supernatural effect. <laughs> um, yeah. And that we pray to God to save us, you know, and it was like, this is when we lose, when we stop being a reality-based society and we move to superstition and rain dances, essentially. And, uh, and I thought, wow, this is, I, I need to write this book. And so that was that, the beginning. That, of that answers a question that I've had ever since you and I had a conversation. I'm going to say at the Locus Awards, way back when you were just beginning Shipbreaker, I believe. And okay. at that time, you, at that time you were convinced that the YA market was what you had to get because you ha- you wanted to change people's minds and young, this is what you said to me, I don't know if I'm remembering it correctly, that the young adults were the ones who needed to inherit the future and, and needed to make these decisions and needed to face these issues. What right. you're saying now is that you've got people like Rick Perry who are even dumber than young adults and need more education. So maybe adults need need that kind of uh, awareness as well as, uh, as as younger readers do. Yeah, so the way that I think about this actually is is not so much about who's smart and st- who's stupid, but who needs what kinds of stories. And writing for young adults, the reason why I think it's important to write for young adults is because they're the ones who are actually going to have to deal with the consequences of our adult decisions. Um, they inherit the earth that we create for them. Um, and so writing for young adults, a lot of it is is about, to me, is about inspiring them and about connecting them to what the consequences of the world that we're going to hand off to them are. Um, and that strikes me as being hugely important because they, they strike me as being a generation that still has the potential to fix things because they haven't made all the, deci- all the bad decisions about their life that we as adults have made. Um, when I think about writing for adults, I think more in terms of giving adults a big bitch slapping, basically. Um, and, and, and it's sort of like, you know, it's like, if I, if I want to inspire young adults, I sort of want to slap adults upside the face and say, Hey, you know, look at this. We're being stupid here. We are actually genuinely being stupid. And, 
and we need to engage with the, with we need to engage with the consequences of our present day actions and um, and that kind of enga- that creates a different kind of story um, and it creates a different yeah. kind of uh, narrative um, and so that's that's that that at least was the initial way that I tended to think about writing for adults and young adults since then it's become a lot more muddy and confused um, I just um, but, but yeah, that was sort of like the initial sort of way that I tended to think about things. And and in particular with this drought one, um, uh-huh. yeah, thinking about adults, I kind of want us to sort of engage with like, here we are, here's the reality now, here's statistically kind of where we're headed. And these are these sort of very logical, very clear consequences that we can anticipate as global warming gets going, we can anticipate this kind of rainfall, we can anticipate this kind of snowfall, we can anticipate that we're going to continue to have population growth in regions that are really, really vulnerable to water scarcity. And how does that work out? The math simply does not add up. Um, uh, too little water, too many people in the Southwest. Right. What does that world right. look like? Um, and that's, you know, and that's big, you know, straight back to the, you know, the classic sort of vein that I, I seem to mine a lot where I'm just interested in sort of asking, the, you know, that if this goes gone, what does the world look like question? So how do you craft a story that sits in what's a fairly on palatable space, if you like, that's actually right. still engaging and challenging for adult readers, because I mean nobody wants to be lectured about this about anything right. when they're reading. Right. Nobody wants a didactic story. Yeah. Nobody wants to be preached at. Nobody wants a lecture. Um, the way that the way that I've thought about this more and more is that you let the world make your argument. Mm-hmm. Um, if you mm-hmm. break the background, if you break the setting. Um, then you can still have really interesting characters doing really interesting things. You can have characters that people can identify with, who you want to have them have their wins. You want to see other people lose. You know, you can root for your team, essentially. But against a backdrop of a world that really is broken by the, the decisions of our present. Um, and so the world, and, you know, and this is sort of what I did with The Wind-Up Girl, was that the world is already broken long before any of the characters come on stage. Yeah. You know, the mm-hmm. agribusiness companies won. They built their monoculture crops, and they were also, like, torn up by the monoculture diseases that came afterwards. And so here's this world that everybody's built through their perfectly logical decisions, but now these characters have to engage with the consequences of that world. Um, and I think that that way, like, it stops being a problem of, two talking heads fighting each other. I think that with a lot of politicized fiction, whether you're talking about feminist fiction or eco-fiction or whatever, um, communist fiction, um, you have this problem of the good guys have the good values, the bad guys have the bad values, and the good guys triumph, therefore good values triumph. You get that really terrible preached at sort of feeling when you're a reader. Um, and and back. so... And so, like, that's, that's, I think that's really the solution is you don't make your characters have those values. You let the world demonstrate a set of ideas. And then the characters can have all sorts of different and varied values. And they can become interesting, nuanced, you know, characters mm. who you root for again. Um, but the short fiction that really made your name back, I, I was looking at my, I looked at my review of Palm 6 and realized that's, what, only five years ago or something, five and a half years <laughs> ago. Right. And, and those stories were really bleak. And something you said to me, I think, and Charles Brown at the same time was that why would anybody, you know, not want to commit suicide after reading something like The People of right. Sand and Slag? Um, right. Well, they're really bleak. But then then when I – so I moved from those, and they're very excellent stories. They're moving stories. As a matter of fact, one of them, I guess, the Tamarisk Hunter is sort of the seed of uh, the water knife, right? Right. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Here's my I, thing about young adults. Uh, I'm just making this up. Um, okay. There's a lot of young adult dystopian things going on out there, and I, I, the Hunger Games I thought was pretty good. Uh, it was a, certainly a good adventure story. My problem with young adult dystopias is that the the dotted line to get from here to there is always very blurry. Right. In other words, what specifically has happened to lead to the Hunger Games world, and it's not any it's 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 not any vector of history that we can imagine. It's just like if all the bad things get worse. Um, and then you go to Shipbreaker from something like that, and you can see exactly where those broken ships come from, where the, where the, where right. the old tankers come from. You can see what happened in New Orleans. So it's a difference between dystopian as a kind of a pop genre for, for uh, young adult heroism and this dystopian literature that we grew up with, which is uh, the awful warning. If we continue doing this, that is what's going to happen and showing you how, how you can do it. 
Um, right. Which is why, I, I, I guess, a way of saying, I think, it's my way of saying, I think that uh, Shipbreaker and the Drowned Cities are more important than even very well done young adult dystopias that are on the bestseller list all the time. Uh, well, I, I'd like to think so, right? Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. I, um, okay, so I think that I think that a lot of young adult dystopian writing is coming from a different. I, I almost feel like in young adult in the young adult genre that science fiction is almost being reinvented again from the ground up. Um, huh. A lot of the writers are people who are coming into young adult writing because they read young adult writing. A lot of the writers are, aren't really connected to the science fiction genre. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think, that, I think that science fiction is almost being rebuilt inside of YA. And so that means that future means a different thing to them or science fiction means a different thing to them. Science fiction might just mean an awesome setting, not a set mm-hmm. of extra- extrapolated consequences. Um, and so I think that you know, I think that that's the thing is I'm carrying certain things that I've come from me being a science fiction reader and then I'm carrying those things into, into young adult. I think that that's sort of we're coming at the idea of science fiction. We're coming at the idea of even dystopia, quote unquote, um, from really, yeah. really different angles. Um, I feel like inside of young adult generally what you're seeing, I think you've said it almost exactly, is that dystopias are a uh, they're sort of the they're sort of a very adventurous, exciting jungle gym where. Mm you get to prove that teenage protagonists matter. Um, their narrative matters. They have the power to change mm-hmm. the world. That matters. Um, they exist in, in some kind of relevant way. And that if I was a teenager, I would love to read something that tells me that I exist in a relevant way because for God's sake, the rest of the world sure tells me I don't. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, you know, I think that there's, there's there, it's performing and solving a different set of problems than the ones that I'm kind of interested in. Um, and so I think that's where you see like, oh yeah, we all get sort of plugged into this sort of dystopian YA genre. But I, I think that the problems we're trying to solve as writers are, are, are oftentimes very, very different. Since you, you know, you, you, you mentioned that many of these YA writers have a different connection to science fiction, I guess, what is your connection to science fiction then? Because, you know, obviously you, you've been a science fiction reader. What makes you want to cast these stories as science fiction? What does it give you in terms of a set of tools to be able to do something you couldn't do in some other form of fiction? Um, well, I, I mean, honestly, the, I, oh, wow. Um, <laughs> there are some very specific tools inside of science fiction, and it starts with the what-if questions. Um, and there, you know, mm-hmm. it's like the theater surgeon asks the next question. It's the, if this goes on, what happens next question. Um, and they're so classic to the idea of extrapolation that, that you just don't see that, you know, hardly at all in play in any other genre. They are, you know, the, the question of where are we headed is a science fictional question. And those are science fictional tools. And, and so, and I think that's the difference. So you're talking about YA dystopias or whatever. YA dystopias are not interested necessarily in the question of where are we headed. Um, and so in that sense, they're building YA science fiction that's you know, and we don't call it science fiction, honestly. We don't even label it that. We call it dystopian YA. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, for me, um, I'm absolutely the core question that I'm always working with is where are we headed? Um, uh, what are the consequences of what we're doing now and where does that take us? And and then, you know, the only way that you can actually, a lot of times the only way you can contextualize present circumstances is to create those kinds of extrapolations. And that's why I write science fiction. It's very, very hard to give a damn about what Monsanto is doing, you know, with their legal strategies here in the United States. Um, You'll see a news item that says, oh, they've gotten some kind of immunity via some bureaucratic process or whatever. And you can't really take that very seriously or engage with that very seriously because there's no context. And, And so writing science fiction allows you to create a context that says, this is why this idea matters. This is why monoculture matters. This is why intellectual property control over genes matters. And, and you can only sort of say that in the extrapolated sense of here's where it is and here's what might happen as we go down the road of like people really having a lot of control over genetic information. Um, and so without that, without, ex- without that extrapolation of going out into the future, you can't actually view the present very effectively. And... And so that's, I mean, that's that's the core of why I'm interested in science fiction. Well, that, that's what I meant when I was, 
Oh, go ahead, Jonathan. I was just going to say that last week, Gary and I spoke to Malcolm Edwards and David Hartwell. Uh-huh. And during that conversation, they referred to how back in the 1950s, there were writers for whom writing science fiction was almost like a holy passion. They, they did it you know, irrespective of whether they made money or not. It was what they felt they had to do because it was their driving passion. Is this what gives you that passion, the ability to ask those what are we going to do next questions when you can't do it somewhere else? I think, okay, so one of the things that, I don't know whether it's like my upbringing <laughs> like, or, um, but I do, you know, I grew up from sort of this hippie family and, you know, sort of do-gooders and, you know, um, all of that kind of stuff. And, and you do sort of have the feeling that if you're a writer and you're making money from your writing, that that's sort of a self-indulgent thing to be doing. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, and so there's something about being able to write about something that's, that you think is important, writing about things that you fear, writing about writing warnings or writing inspirations where you feel like, yeah, this is creative and this is a joy to do. And it's really, and in some cases it's cathartic for me because I get to unload some of my worst fears and sort of set them out outside of me instead of holding them in. Um, but there's also a sense of service to that. And, and that you, you sort of feel like you're doing something that's both creatively satisfying and so you feel fulfilled that way, but you also feel as if you're doing something of service and therefore you're not just sort of wanking. Yeah. And that's important, it turns out. It turns out actually that's a huge motivator for me to feel like, oh, actually this writing that I'm doing is not just about me. It's actually about the world. It's actually about trying to make the world better and that helps me feel like, oh, this isn't just something that's self-indulgent. This is actually, you know, hopefully it's a, a gift or a service to other people as well. Um, well, the sense, the sense I have in, uh, in, in talking with you about this when you were moving into YA is that there, there's, yeah, you can write really powerful science fiction and get a lot of awards for it and all the stories that led up to Pump 6 certainly did that and deserved the awards. But the science fiction readers, by and large, are, are the converted. They're the choir. They, they, they agree with you about this. You move into YA, you might get a broader base of, of readers who maybe hadn't thought as much about these things. And then when you move right. into mainstream, and this is where I want to talk about getting a deal with, with, with Alfred A. Knopp, for heaven's sake. I mean, they, yeah. they published Willa Cather. They published yeah. Jack London. They published Toni Morrison. Not a lot <laughs> of science fiction, though. Yeah. Um, but they did publish Cormac McCarthy. And mm-hmm. that's another interesting example of a future that seems to exist for its metaphorical power rather than right. for any logical way of getting from here to there. Mm. I, so, so going back to like there's this idea that like I think is really important, which is I want to tell stories for the most people I can. Right. Um, and one of my biggest terrors about science fiction is that we have a lot of conversations that are very, very cool, but they happen – within our tiny, tiny circle. Um, yeah. And, and if you're sort of wanting to change the world, it's a terrible way to change the world, talking to just your tiny, tiny circle. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, and so like one of those things was, yeah, for me to talk to be, be able to go and write YA stories meant that I got to speak to a different set of generations, mm-hmm. which was huge and also instructive for me. I feel like I learned a lot doing that and having conversations with teenagers. Um, uh, but also, yeah, this idea, like we have these very, very strange divides between, oh, this is science fiction. This is genre. This is not science fiction. This is for everyone else. And I've seen this happen a lot where, you know, I'll be on a plane and I'm talking to somebody and they say, oh, what do you do? I say, I write novels. And they say, oh, what kind of novels? I say science fiction. And they say, oh. Right. There's just this but wall. younger people. Uh, go ahead and finish this on. Well, there's this horrible wall that suddenly falls between you and that person. And you say, no, no, let me back up. Okay, I write about these ideas. I write about these kinds of issues. I write about these kinds of topics. And they say, oh, that sounds very interesting. But when you say science fiction, you see the wall just fall between you and that other person. And and so, yeah, one of my goals, actually, one of the ideals that I had was that, that my next science fiction novels would be published by a mainstream publisher. Um because I do want to have that conversation with a lot of different people and I want them to sort of feel invited into that conversation and and not walled off, um, whether that's because they judge science fiction as being something or because they just don't go to that part of the bookstore. 
um, or because they've never gotten a taste of these things. And, um, and so, yeah, I just want to be out there talking to yeah. more people um, in as many formats as possible, honestly. You were, I know you've talked to a lot of young adult readers, as I, as I have, and I've talked to one or two who've read um, Shipbreaker. And when you talk to young adults or teenagers and point out that that was a science fiction novel, they never thought of it as a science fiction novel. Right. It, it, that, that category never occurred to them. And then if right. you sort of point out the elements that make it science fiction, they say, okay, fine, whatever. Um, but it's still, no. they, they don't think in genre and, terms. And, and in well, or they they haven't been they've they've actually been categorized separately. What they think of the, they think of Hunger Games as being dystopian. Um, well, yeah. You know, I talk to a, I talk to a lot of YA writers, and they say, "Oh, I'm writing a science fiction novel now." And what that really means to them is spaceships. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you know, at some point, it's not really worth arguing about what the symbol meaning of the words science fiction is. It just matters yeah. that those symbol right. meanings exist. And so, if science fiction means spaceships, boy. That's not what I want to be labeled as because, boy, do I not write about spaceships. <laughs> um, right. And, you know, you know, so I'll take whatever labels someone wants to give me as long as they're actually going to pick up the book and read the damn thing. And, you know, that's, you know, I, I think that, you know, and, and there's, there's a certain on some level, like, I'm never going to be sorry about saying that, like, yeah, this is where I come from. This is science fiction. These are all science fiction's tools. Mm -hmm. But on some other level, if it's published by Knopf and they say, hey, this is mainstream, like, you know, go forth and conquer for all I care. Like, um, because yeah, no, I, I've had these, I go to these school groups and I say, okay, let's talk about what science fiction is. Let's think about some ideas about what science fiction is. Um, what do you think of when you hear the words science fiction? And, mm -hmm. you know, you get a Star Wars reference, you get a Star Trek reference. Um, you never get a Brave New World reference. You never get, a, mm -hmm. you know, for YA, for The Giver, you never get, you know, people never mention The Giver by Lois Lowry. Um, you know, there's all of these things which are all fit under what we think of as being the big umbrella of science fiction. But in popular culture, there's actually a very, very narrow definition of science fiction. Right. And, yeah. I mean, I've, I've actually taught Flowers for Algernon to students who argued from beginning to end, of course it's not science fiction. Um, Where's my spaceship? It could happen. Yeah, exactly. Where's my spaceship? Oh, yeah. No, I, I had I actually just had somebody recently, an adult, actually argue the exact same thing to me. And I was like... I said, well, what do you think? <clears throat> he's like, he's like, well, this is literature because I can't re remember the book that he was talking about because it really could happen. You could actually see the way it would happen. And, <laughs> and it was about the, f and, and I, I sort of said, I sort of looked at him and I was like, you've read my books. Like, I, what are you, what are we talking about here? Like, it was just the strange thing that just, you know, that as soon as you had that label on science fiction, almost, it must be fanciful as opposed to relevant. And, and that's a, that's a frustrating label to have. Like if you're, if you're trying to say, no, no, pay attention. <laughs> well, if I'm not mistaken, going back to, uh, to a moment to the uh, to the water knife and to the, the, the Tamarisk Hunter, wasn't the Tamarisk Hunter, if I'm remembering correctly, wasn't that the only story in Pump 6 that was not published in a science fiction venue originally? It was in your newspaper, right? That's correct. Yeah, it was originally published by High Country News, which is an environmental newspaper. Um, right. And, and it was sort of a gamble that uh, the editor at High Country News at that time um, sort of was wanting to shake up the paper. And at the time I was already working on a novel or on a short story about drought. And he said, I want that for the, I want that for the paper. And I was like, okay. And it was really interesting though, because this is the other aspect of science fiction, I think is that when I sat down and I was thinking about like, okay, I'm gonna write, if I'm writing the Tamaris Connor and I'm messing around with these ideas already, what do I wanna do to make this as most, the most engaging story possible for an environmental newspaper reader as opposed to what I think of as my classic science fiction reader if I was selling this to Asimov's or to FNSF or something like that. And one of the things that I did was I really, really pared down a lot of the other outside extrapolative pieces to it. I said, we're going to focus in on this water concept. That's where they're interested. That's the core of the mm -hmm. story. I'm not going to move the technology forward very much unless it like really directly relates to the water. You know, they're they're building yeah. a straw to contain the Colorado River. And, you know, that's pretty much the only, you know, big technology thing that's really happening. And even the straw isn't isn't, you know, wildly extrapolative. The only extrapolations that are going to occur in this story specifically are going to relate to water, water scarcity, climate change. That's where we're going to extrapolate. Um, no tech, no crazy stuff, no no goo gaws, no no eyeball kicks, as, as somebody once put it. Um, 
this is going to be a quiet story about drought mattering. And that was it. And, um, and it really worked. Um, I mean, we got really, really interesting uh, responses from the, really? the newspaper readers. Um, yeah, it was great um, because they got it. And this was an experiment because this was a newspaper that never published fiction. And so suddenly we stick this fiction story right on the cover of the, of the newspaper and uh, said, here's your, here's your issue of High Country News. And, um, and we got best conversations going because you suddenly had all these water managers writing in and saying, well, actually, you know, we think this is the way it's going to play out. This is what we're watching. You had lawyers who were weighing in and like sort of ranking the different rights that they saw being the most relevant. You had people saying, actually, I have no idea. We're actually worried about this and we don't know what's going to happen. And we're worried about this. And these were people who are like, you know, these are water lawyers. These are water managers for cities and towns. These are the people who are actually the people in the trenches of dealing with water scarcity. And you're seeing this conversation sort of happen where you realize that a lot of professionals are, you know, looking at this and going, oh, right, this is exactly the kinds of puzzles we're trying to unravel right now. And to feel like that you're writing a story that dealt with their exact question marks and their exact puzzles and their and and that also were revealing a lot of their unknowns as well was was really, really satisfying. Are the salt binding trees from the story surviving into the novel? Uh, the Are the tamarisk, you mean? Is the that tamarisk trees, yeah. The, the tamarisk, they, that's not actually the focus of this story. The core of the water knife is really about uh, this, a water war that gets going between Phoenix and Las Vegas. Um, ah. And these two cities that both have terrible water rights on the Colorado River, um, sort of duking it out to try to get like the last scraps of the river while California sort of looms over them with the very senior rights. Um, and it's it's all about planning really i mean it's 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 a very exciting action packed novel about water planning <laughs> um Have you and because because what i was really interested in was was actually drawing some 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 divisions and this is goes back to sort of watching rick perry pray for rain in texas was yeah. what happens if you decide to be a reality based society and engage with the idea that we're headed for climate change this is real this will have real consequences we will have less water. You know, I wanted to have sort of two cities, one of which which sort of looked at the future, looked what was coming and said, yeah, this matters and we're going to start making our planning now. And I wanted another city that was going to live in denial and try to pretend like climate change and drought were not going to have a massive impact on their future. And really? sort of like do kind of a compare and contrast between these two different ways of engaging with present data as they moved into the future. And so you're getting to watch the results. And and Las Vegas, the land of fantasy, is actually the one that's sort of engaged with the seriousness of the issue. And Phoenix is the one that's decided to sort of live in its fantasy world and try to pretend like this stuff isn't coming down the pike. So yeah, and so that was that's sort of like the kickoff of the story. Um, and so the story focuses on a water knife from Las Vegas. And Las Vegas has these sort of agents that are sort of like 007s or something. Uh -huh. Blow up other people's water treatment plants. They go out and make, you know, offers for water rights that people can't refuse. They, you know, set up little militias. They do all kinds of like nefarious things on behalf of Las Vegas water. Um, mm -hmm. And so they work for the Southern Nevada Water Authority, and uh, and they're just, just, you know, just excellent 007s and stuff. And and meanwhile, Phoenix has sort of managed to fall into ruin um, and is trying to sort of claw its way back. And so the whole story centers around a hunt for some very senior water rights that have suddenly come on the picture and might change the entire way that everybody gets water allocated to each other and stuff. And so that's, that's kind of the story. Um, so there's some archival research, like water rights were assigned to somebody decades earlier that, right. Cause that exactly. sounds like the movie Chinatown actually. There's well, I mean, when you talk about water in the West, everything boils down to who has the senior rights and it is right. all water. It is all paper. Um, it's all paper trails. Um, you know, so-and-so filed on water back in 1880, and this water right is connected to this water-sharing agreement between these states that occurred in 1902, you know, all of those kinds of things. Um, one of the books that I, you know, sort of as a touchstone in my, in my novel is actually Cadillac Desert by Mark Reisner, which is sort of the, the sort of the seminal text for water, um, water planning and thinking about what was happening with water and water scarcity in the Southwest. Um, and I sort of get to riff on some of the things that Reisner was writing about in Cadillac Desert. Mm. Um, 
but yeah, a lot of these things, I mean, Chinatown is, is, is a classic water novel because it's all about deciding to take water from somewhere else and move it somewhere else and what the implications right. of that are. And, uh, yeah, no, it's a, it's a great, it's a great story for, you know, thinking about water. So. The other novel it reminds me of, which is completely irrelevant to this, except, uh, and, and, and this is, I think, good news because it was a novel that became a mainstream bestseller, even though it was really science fiction, was Philip Wiley's novel Tomorrow, which I think is about 1954 or 55. Tomorrow, with an exclamation point, was a civil defense novel. And it, was, it took two cities, Kansas City, Kansas, and Kansas City, Missouri, one of which had set up a civil defense program and the other of which hadn't. Now, he's writing about nuclear war from the 50s perspective. It, it, was, it, was, it was a good example of the this, of this science fiction novel that became kind of a breakout bestseller. And as a result, it's kind of been erased from the history of science fiction, but it's very big. It looms very large in the history of nuclear war fiction. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. It actually sounds to me a lot like a corollary to Stan Robinson's book, Pacific Edge. Okay. Which, which is yeah, a yeah. utopia about Californian water rights, not a dystopia. You know, about mm. taking the, the exact opposite kind of angle and trying to find out how you can make it all work out. Right. Uh, rather than work out how it can't work out, mm -hmm. which so is. <laughs> but I, I do have one question for you. Somehow, while you were writing yeah. the Drowned Cities, you managed right. to produce another book as what distraction from it. Oh yes, let's talk about that. <laughs> how, oh, how, yeah. do you, how do you write another book to distract yourself from having to write the book you're writing? I sort of. I, I think this might be actually my mo because when I was writing uh, Wind Up Girl, I, I I went off and hid and wrote Shipbreaker in between stints with Wind Up Girl, and so maybe it's just kind of what I what I have to do. But um, what happened was I was actually sort of deep in the weeds with the Drowned Cities. Uh, Drowned Cities was was actually my first genuine follow up novel um, because I did write Shipbreaker and Wind Up Girl at the same time um, and sold them fairly close together as well. Um, and so I sort of started both of those books off at the same time and launched them at the same time. Um, from my perspective, they came out in different years for everybody else. But for me, they were basically written simultaneously and launched and sold simultaneously. So once both of those books had come out, I was, I had to write another book that would follow on those and, and wind up girl, you know, of course had done insanely well. And uh, and Shipbreaker also had been this 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 crazy you know sort of roller coaster of success and uh, and so then you're supposed to write something that sort of matches what those things had done and uh, and and that's that's uh, I'm I'm sure that there are some writers who don't get wrapped up in this shit but like boy it fucked me up <laughs> um, and. Well, uh, <laughs> And so I, I, was, I became really paralyzed. I was, I, you know, there were so many voices in my head of people who loved what Shipbreaker was, wanted more of what Shipbreaker did. There were voices in my head that like, that you, you know, sort of were like, oh, I want to make this more, more this way or more that way or less this way or less that way. And there, you know, there's just like, you get a lot of feedback once your books start actually going out into the outside world. And I was never mm -hmm. prepared for that. And so all of that sort of tsunami of feedback kind of came back in. And then, then you set out trying to get to a quiet space where you can write your next book. And, um, and it's hard. And so what I ended up doing was initially with the drowned cities, I wrote an entire draft of the novel, um, which was supposed to be a very direct sequel to shipbreaker. It actually picked up right where shipbreaker left off and continued on with the shipbreaker story. And, uh, it was, it was horrible. Um, it was, it was, it was, it was a travesty of fiction. I wrote 90,000 words and it was, it was, it was garbage. And, uh, um, I ended up throwing it all away. Um, when I sort of figured that out and, uh, and started over again, trying to write a story that actually, you know, I sort of set all the voices aside and started trying to pay attention just to what I needed to write. And, uh, and that was where the drowned cities came from. But I got about halfway into that new version of The Drowned Cities, and I just bogged down. Like, the pressure of it, by that time, I'd already blown my deadlines for my book and stuff. I was feeling like I was feeling like a real failure. Um, and I was just sort of slogging through, and I was really deep in the weeds with the book. And it was really, it was a hard book because it was also a very depressing and intense book to write. It's all about child soldiering. And right. so um, the intensity of the story itself was actually sort of weighing down on me as well. And uh, And so... Um, I wrote zombie baseball as kind of an escape. Um, and what happened was I got invited to go on a, ret a writing retreat and 
I was away on this writing retreat for two weeks down in Mexico, and I decided that I would just walk away from the drowned cities entirely, and I would write something completely different. And and the key was that I was going to write something that nobody knew about at all. Um, it was going to be a secret project that nobody wanted any didn't want nobody wanted it from me. Nobody would expect it from me. Nobody would have any opinions of it. Um, you know, and like the, the beauty of a secret project is you finally get to write it for yourself again, because who can, nobody's going to have an opinion about me writing a middle grade zombie novel. I'm writing a, 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 a zombie novel for eight to 12 year olds, which is so far outside of everything else that I've done. You know, the zombies thing, it's going to be kind of goofy and hilarious. And, um, you know, and it's, it's for me, it's for my entertainment, but like for once you actually get to reclaim your, your creativity as well, you actually get to feel like oh, this is about me, this is my voice, this is my entertainment, nobody else matters, because in fact, nobody else wants this thing. Um, <clears throat> and that was, uh, that was, that was a gift for me, at least. Um, it was just, it was, it was, um, it was something that allowed me to get really centered about what I was doing with my creativity. And it was a rest from, a respite sort of from working on the Drowned Cities. Um, and I wrote the book in uh, the initial draft of it. I literally wrote in two and a half weeks. Um, I I just I wrote you know thousands and thousands of words every day. I basically would wake up and I would start writing. And I just would write until dusk, and I just did that again and again. And I'd never been more relaxed as a writer during that period of time. It was it was more fun and more relaxing probably than anything I'd done. Even though I was working probably more intensely than I'd ever written. Also, um, and at the end of that, uh, I came back from the retreat and. I immediately could look at Drowned Cities and know what I needed to do with it. Um, and that was that was powerful, too, is that I'd finally sort of recalibrated everything and gotten myself centered enough that by doing something that was just for me, I could also look at this other book and say, oh, right, here's why this book doesn't work. Here's why this book doesn't work. Here, do this and this and this. And now suddenly everything clicks and I can finish this book. Um, and so it was this weird thing where for a long time I'd always forced myself to write if you started a book, you had to finish that book before you could start the next one. And and I started being a lot more gentle with myself about that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Right now I start to saying, oh, you know what? You write this book until it dies for you or you get stuck. And then pick up something else that feels creative and play with that for a little while. And then come back. And so right now, like, I mean, so over the last, over the period of the last, you know, year or so, I've actually been working on, I was working on revisions for Zombie Baseball Beatdown. I was working on The Water Knife. And then I'm also working on, and simultaneously, I've also been working on my next young adult novel, which is called The Doubt Factory. And having all of those things happening all at once is actually, and I think I wrote a short story in there too. And like, but having all of those things happening all at once has actually felt, I felt both more productive and more relaxed. And I end up having more fun doing the work that I'm doing. Um, but all of those projects seem to move forward more quickly and more effectively than they used to when I was just being focused on a single project and being, you know, really responsible and disciplined and, you know, all that kind of stuff that I thought I was supposed to be doing. For all of that, though, I have to say, listening to you talk about zombie baseball beatdown, it doesn't sound remotely like something distant from your core mission or business or interest uh it record I mean, when i first heard about the book which was after it was announced as a a project that was out in the world yeah it completely recalled 100 percent a conversation that you and i had three years ago where you were deeply deeply passionate about talking to young children younger readers particularly younger male readers about creating positive role models in life showing them ways of solving problems in a physical kind of a way that wasn't right. actually going to be frowned upon i mean right. this really seems that that's that core conversation brought to life if you like yeah well okay so this book the original the very the very beginning inspiration for this book started with my wife who's a school teacher and she had some kids who weren't reading, um, and some of those kids specifically were boys who weren't reading and weren't really interested in reading. And, and you know, she asked them directly, <clears throat> well, what would you like to read about? And the response was, zombies. <laughs> and uh, and you, you sort of sit there and you think about that for a second, and you look at the video games that they get to play. And, you know, right now my son is nine years old, and, uh, and w but, but when he was eight, he was playing a game called Le uh, Earn to Die was the name of the game. And it's basically a game where you, it's an iPod game where you earn progressively larger vehicles that allow you to drive over more and more zombies. 
And oh, I've got that game. I love that game. That's great. It's a hilarious game, and yeah. and uh, and my son loves it. And I'm thinking, okay, so if eight year olds play this kind of a game, and you know, eight, nine, ten year olds or whatever want to read zombie books, you, you sort of think, like, wait a second, like you have to listen to that and respect it. And and instead of giving them the House on Mango Street, or instead of giving them, mm-hmm. um, you know, some some piece of, you know, instead of giving them The Giver or whatever the the piece of sort of more what we call more literary and more respectable fiction, which are great. Um, but might not feed actually their desperate hungers for story. Um, then you start thinking like, how do you feed those those hungers for story? And and so yeah, the, my my thinking was at first was just yeah okay kid, you want a zombie book? I'll give you a zombie book. You know we'll get some splatter going here. You bet. And yeah. uh, and and so yeah, and it does start with that. Like you know I do want boys to be reading. I I feel like you know if we're gonna have a dystopian society, a dystopian society starts with a a world where women women read and boys don't. And you're like wow, that doesn't work out well at all. Like you know half the population are ignoramuses. This is not gonna be a good world. Um, so you, you know, know why like, probably go ahead sorry yeah 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 so so I was just you say why probably i'm sorry <laughs> i mean no, i wanted to so, ask you about one thing because the, the other besides zombies the other half of the novel is and i I've, I've not seen the novel because for some reason locust doesn't get middle grade books to review but just, um i've got a grandkid who who's, who's really good at sports he there's a writer named dan gutman uh who had written a series of Really fantasy novels about magic baseball cards. If you hold it, squeeze it, it takes you back to the time of, 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 of the baseball players. One called Jackie and Me about Jackie Robinson, which is really uh, an introduction to civil rights. But it's really a time travel novel because there's one about Honus Wagner in which you realize not all baseball players were nice guys. So it right. seems to me, from what I've seen on your own website and from a few conversations, that you know your way around baseball, too. I, I had to learn my way around baseball. Um, but, uh, friends of mine are big into baseball. Friends of mine were big into little league and things like that. Um, I actually was into baseball because I wanted to have baseball bats in my story. And I wanted wanted something that I could beat the hell out of zombies with and baseball bats looked good to me. Um, so I wanted to weaponize my kids and, and so that was, that was, that was my, my objective. And so then I had to study up on baseball and all the rest of it. Um, mm. I was also, I'm also really, I'm fascinated by baseball and baseball statistics is actually what I'm fascinated by. Um, you know, Moneyball, um, mm. you know, Sabermetrics, things like that um, are right. really, really right. interesting to me. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I, I started with this whole idea of like, I'm just writing a story for a kid who wants to read about zombies, who want, who likes sports, who wants to see some things beaten up or bloody or bonged up or banged up or exploded or whatever. And, and, uh, you know, almost immediately because I'm writing the story, then it becomes also other kinds of things. Um, because I, apparently that's the way I think. And so, you know, when I started thinking about where does the zombie apocalypse come from, the obvious answer for me was, well, it's going to come from the local meatpacking plant. Um, and as, as zombie apocalypses always do. Right. (laughs) And so, you know, bad meat, you know, I mean, it's, it seems so, it seems like a, a no brainer, so to speak. Um, so, so suddenly like, you know, I get to talk about food and I get to talk about food safety and I get to talk about the meat industry and I get to talk about how we do industrial meat. And, you know, these kids get to investigate all of those kinds of things. And, and that's, you know, and so suddenly, like, I'm actually having sort of a, you know, writing the fast food nation for, you know, 10 year olds or whatever. I was going to say, it sounds, like a cross, it sounds like a cross between George Romero movie and Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. Oh, hell yeah. No. And then like, and I'm, I'm delighted by this, you know, suddenly like, it's like, wow, this is, I started out as a lark and now it's actually, what do you know? It's a serious issues novel, just like all of my other novels are serious. <laughs> issues. Um, but you're going to get to have a good time beating the hell out of zombies with baseball bats along the way. And, you know, you're going to get to like fight zombie cows and things and, you know, um, oh yeah. Was, oh, did you say zombie cows? I said zombie cow. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a zombie cow named Bart by the end of it. So, um, but <laughs> Yeah, the, I mean, it's like it's and so it's an opportunity to have sort of a lark in terms of having an adventure story with kids with baseball bats defending their tiny town from the apocalypse. <laughs> but uh, but um, but it's also a chance to talk about meatpacking plants and, you know, and, and embedded in that, then there was another set of conversations about, you know, what does it mean to be an American? Um, because, 
you know, once you get into meatpacking plants, you get into the fact that meatpacking plants take advantage of all of these workers. And a lot of these workers are undocumented workers. And who are these people that are like sort of thrown into the meatpacking plants to work and stuff? And, and, you know, so like you suddenly like, you know, there's, it suddenly ends up being this like much bigger meditation on everything from food safety to immigration, to racism, to, you know, definitions of what it is to be an American, to teamwork, to, you know, all of these other things. I was like, Oh, it's a pretty deep novel, considering I started out with zombies and baseball. <laughs> zombies and baseball, yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you: When do you think we stopped thinking it was okay to have fault pro- stories solved physically, particularly when we present them to young adults or kids? For some reason, there's this idea that you shouldn't right. solve problems that way, and I, I don't know when it got lost. And also, well, when did it become a boys thing? Problem-solving tool is not an appropriate problem-solving tool, right? <laughs> um, and. And on some level, like, I don't know, I think there's an interesting thing where we, I mean, I, you know, there's so many different things that are in play there. And I mean, in some levels, like philosophically, I don't agree with violence as a problem solving tool. I think there should be a number of other sort of solutions. And yet genetically, apparently I'm pretty interested in science, in violence as a problem solving tool. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And so I want to be a civilized male. And yet I also need to sort of be able to indulge in my uncivilized sort of sense of self. Um, and I think that's the thing that w- gets weird with when you've got kids growing up is it's sort of when, if you, if you aren't actually given stories that you have an appetite for inherently, it means that it's not okay to be what you are. And, and, and that also means that like, you aren't ever going to engage with story. You aren't going to ever engage with literature because you think it's not for you because it doesn't tell the stories that are actually for whatever reason are profoundly engaging to you. And, and you end up sort of sidelined from, you know, what, where we eventually want you to get, which is civilized society. Um, and there's a huge irony in that, like a, a few uncivilized stories might lead, lead to more, more civilized, you know, boys down the road or whatever. Sure. Um, and, and so, but I don't know where it starts. I mean, I know that, I know that we've changed. Um, and I know that like, you know, I know, I know that, you know, I mean, it's the, I think this is some of the stuff that's, it's complicated because, you know, you don't want to fall completely down the rabbit hole into all sorts of like strange sexual stereotypes. No. But, no. you know, there is some 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 meaning to the idea that there is sexual dimorphism. And there are yeah. certain things. And, I, you know, it's hard to say. Why is it that exactly that when I read a certain passage and then hand it to my wife, she thinks it's just stupid while I think it's hilarious? I don't know. But it's there. And and I you sort of have to honor the stories that my wife likes and engages with. But I think you also still have to honor the stories that I like and engage with. And and when you're talking about children, the key is to find the stories that fit that child. Um, and that's going to be all over the map. You know, like, you know, yeah, this boy may hate baseball. This boy may hate zombies. And this boy may hate violence. That's great. Like, let's give him a book that he wants to read. That's fine. Um, but there's another kid who's sitting there off in a corner saying, I hate school. Fuck this shit. And you're like, here, kid, you know, try this out instead. You aren't actually as far on the outliers as you feel like you are. And to give that kid a chance to come in is is a, is a good thing, too. Um, do, you, do you really think, though, that that is a male thing? I mean, after our conversation in San, wherever it was, three years ago, I had an equally passionate conversation with a female friend of mine who argued that those were exactly the kind of stories she was looking for as well. And that, you know, problem solving through direct action and physical means was potentially well, equally attractive. Action, not just direct action. Let's just say the straight well, violence, out. Yeah. Violence, flat Blowing out things violence. Up. Blowing things you up. You win by beating the shit out of somebody yes. else. Yes. That's yeah. me. Like if, if that's, you know, and that's great. If she likes that story, I wanted to read my books, <laughs> you know, like. I mean, one of the things I think that, you know, when we when we sort of say that, uh, you know, you know, this is a boy story, this is a girl story. Those are such big generalizations that that they almost in in some ways they're 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 really, really meaningless. And 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 they're really annoying, too, because, yeah, if there's a girl who wants to read this story, one of the things that I'm thinking about as a writer is I don't want to write anything in this story that says that she doesn't get to enjoy that story. Yeah. Um, you know, the, 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 I think that where we run into problems with sort of like saying, oh, it's this, this story is for a boy or this story is for a girl is where you not only say it's for someone, but you also erect a bunch of signs on the outside edge of it that say, and right. by the way, it's not for anyone else. And, and, <laughs> and is, is that actually the great concern you have, not just with zombie baseball beatdown, but with the water knife, with shipbreaker, with drowned cities, with wind up girl, that you don't want to put up signs that say you're in, but you're out. I, I think that I think that 
Wow. Um, I think yes, in a lot of ways. I, I do think about those things. Um, I think I remember. OK, so just speaking about, you know, sort of um, different genders reading my stories, like starting with that and ta- talking about like uh, mm-hmm. Shipwreck and the Drowned Cities. You know, one of the things was I knew with Shipbreaker, I wanted to write a story, you know, and again, it was for a hypothetical boy reader. Um, but I also wanted to make sure that I had female characters in there who were extremely strong and, and were really dynamic and were really important in their own right and had a lot of, um, they, they just had, the, they had their full range of humanity connected to them. Um, and, and so, because you want these strong female role models. And then when I moved into the drowned cities and I wanted to write about a female character, Malia, um, right. you know, similarly, right. there were certain things that I wanted to do so that like, yeah, this is a story about a girl who is a serious badass. Um, and I want girls to be able to read that and love that. But I also want boys to be able to connect into both her as an individual. And I want them to be able to connect into the other boys and girls who are around Malia. And, and and I think that there's just something where, I mean, honestly, I think that, you know, I, I can't remember if it was a, a Joss Whedon quote or somebody who says, you know, I've always gone by this, or maybe it was a George Martin quote. I've always gone on this assumption that, that women are people. And, <laughs> yeah, well, I- and, and what do you know if you actually treat your characters as if they're people as opposed to sort of cardboard objects? You know, they, a lot of that stuff automatically solves itself. Um, if your if your boys and your girls and your stories are both allowed to be people fully, then you know I think that I think that it also allows a range of genders to connect to them um, and engage with them, um, and so that a story about a boy doesn't automatically block out girls, and a story about a girl doesn't automatically block out boys, um, as long as they're you know all allowed to blow shit up and kill people. So <laughs> exactly, as long as as long as you've got baseball bats and zombies. It's- Who's wielding the bat isn't really that important, I guess. Right. As long as as long as there's blood at the end of the time. But, you know, <laughs> right. I mean, it's, right. you know, a lot of this stuff, too, I feel like one of the things is, is like, here I am. I'm going to write some stories that appeal aesthetically to me. And boy, God, I hope that these connect to some kids or some adults or whoever is going to be my reader. And and I hope that I'm not setting up signs that say, no, this just doesn't work for you completely. Um, but the reality is, is like no story works for everyone mm. either. No, and. But- and what you're hoping is that there's a vast range of stories being told. And you're hoping that, like, you're not the, you know, it's like the thing is, is, okay, I'm writing my young adult stories. I'm writing my middle grade stories. But, you know, right next to me, Ray Carson is writing her stories or Tamora Pierce is writing her stories. And those are mm-hmm. also, you know, like really powerful narratives. And you're hoping that the smorgasbord is big enough so that kids just all have a chance to find the pieces of food that they like, you know, the storytelling food that they like. Um, and that's, I think that's, I think that's really the key is like, you want to have a lot of different pieces out there. So lots of kids can select from lots of different pieces. Right. Um, and getting expanding back to a, options. Uh, just getting back to a, uh, maybe not kids, but people from 18, uh, I have a question, which I was going to ask you. And I was thinking I should ask you before or after the podcast, but I'd love to hear your answer because okay. it has to deal You're with the right, readership right. of science fiction. Perfect. Go on. <laughs> okay. Well, the question is this: I, uh, at, at my university, I agreed uh, in the in January to start teaching a course. We have a degree program in what we call sustainability studies, which okay. means that most of the students in it are interested in uh, everything from public policy to to biology to biochemistry. But they're not literary students, and right. I'm going to put together a course which deals with sustainability in literature and possibly in film. I mean, I have, I've begun to think about it. And so I'm, th- I'm looking at, okay, what novels, what works of fiction, what films that deal with the issue of sustainability would be intriguing and accessible to students who are interested in the issue but not interested in literature? So your name obviously comes up. Stan Robinson's name comes up. And one of the books I'm thinking about doing is Pump 6 because it has so many different issues that relate to sustainability. Right. And my question is, would that be better than um, Shipbreaker? Right. I, I, I would say yes. And it is, it is simply because it's so many different attacks on the question of sustainability. The problem with Shipbreaker right. is that you end up with one conversation, which is a sort of a global warming poverty, um, you know, peak oil set of conversations right. or whatever, as right. opposed to, you know, pump six where you get to talk about drought or you get to talk about global warming or you get to talk about endocrine disruptors or, you know, there's, there's so many different things that are inside of pump six that you end up with. In addition, more. To, which, yeah, in addition pump, to which the story you know, pump six deals with higher education, more or less. Right. Exactly. 
Um, and you've also got some things like the people of sand and slag, which, uh, you know, are, are more about, you know, they have to do with sort of how we engage as a species with technology and solutions and things like that. Um, so on that level, yeah. And also, I mean, honestly, with students, it's nice to sort of be able to hit them over the head with something and then bounce, you know, without having to spend right. a huge amount of time inside of a novel. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that's, that would sort of be my, my instantaneous sort of reaction. I mean, if they aren't really going to be good, that's kind of what my thoughts were too. By the way, speaking of the people of Sand and Slag, there's a discussion board that goes on among the Science Fiction Research Association where people sometimes ask questions about some research they're doing. And somebody was asking questions about the issue of future food, uh, what kind of food we'll be eating. And, and somebody on the board said, well, you should read The People of Sand and Slag. And I thought, yeah. man, if that's a future food novel, it's really future food story. It's really depressing. Right, right. We'll we'll solve the problem by just being able to eat anything. I'm just right. We'll just on change ourselves. Desk. Yeah, I'm just gonna gnaw on my my desk's leg for food today. So, <laughs> like, yeah, cuisine sort of takes on a different meaning. Well, I guess as, as we move towards the end of the hour, because we are getting towards the end of our time, uh -huh. I should ask you, um, obviously Zombie Baseball Beatdown is out there in the world at the moment. What will be the next thing after it? Will it be the short story? Will it be one of the YA novels? Uh, probably the next thing, assuming I hit my deadline, which is <laughs> always a, you know, uh, the next thing that will actually probably be coming out is there's going to be a YA novel called The Doubt Factory. And... It's uh, it's actually going to be a contemporary novel, um, and it's all about uh, product defense and public relations. Uh, it's about the product defense industry, which is a, a very specific sort of piece of the public relations industry, which focuses around um, helping corporations who have deadly products protect themselves. Uh, and it started really with the cigarette industry. Um, and has, and, and uh, the profession has sort of moved from from cigarettes into the nuclear industry, into the asbestos industry, into the lead industry, wow. into the chemical industries, into the right. The, right. the fossil fuels industries. And uh, um, anyway, I, I really am fascinated by how industrial PR works, and especially I'm interested in how there's a sort of a professional cadre of people whose job is to make science confusing. Mm. Um, the yeah. objective, really, with all of this stuff is to create doubt in the marketplace. Um, you want to make people uncertain about whether or not global warming is real. You want to make them uncertain about whether or not carbon is responsible. You want to make them uncertain about whether the science is settled. Um, and that there's, you know, that there is actually this professional cadre of people who do this for a living, um, making sure that, like, as long as the marketplace is confused, i.e. democracy is confused, about whether or not global warming is real, that means that politicians aren't experiencing any pressure to solve the problem. There's no immediacy to that, and it means that a corporation can stave off any kind of regulation. Um, and that was exactly the playbook that the cigarette industry used for years, <clears throat> both when they were yeah. first trying yeah. to fight uh, legislation about, um, about whether or not cigarette smoke was dangerous and then later secondhand smoke. Um, but it, it's just a fascinating sort of process, and there's there's a very specific playbook that gets used uh, when when an industry wants to make sure that people are confused about whether or not a product is deadly. Um, and so so yeah, so I'm I'm I want to sort of write a story about that. And so the the novel really is all about a girl who discovers that her father is is a really big honcho in this public relations firm, and the public relations firm's sort of nickname is called the Doubt Factory. Cool. Cool. So yeah, so that'll be the next thing, and then That's after that, it's yeah. and, and it's interesting. One of the things, this is the first podcast that Jonathan and I have done since the very sad death of Frederick Pohl. But the mm. Space Merchants had, for 1952, some remarkable ideas about that exact issue when advertising was simply becoming a a, a national force, and the idea of corporations creating. Uh, a soft drink, which makes you want to have certain snacks, munchies, which in right. turn makes you want to have a certain kind of coffee, which in turn makes you want to have a certain kind of cigarette. Uh, right. He and Cornbluth had completely talked about a world run by advertising. Right. And, um, and and it's probably a lot more sophisticated now than it was in 1952. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, it's really interesting. I, I was just reading uh, Dune a little while ago, and I was sort of 
shocked at all the pieces and parts of that book that I sort of feel like like were exactly the things that I was interested in writing when I was starting to write Wind Up Girl and other other stories yeah. about sort of you know ecosystems and things like that. And it's it's sort of this you always want to think you're writing original work and then you go back deeper and deeper into science fiction and you see all of these sort of nascent pieces all laid out by the greats yeah. of science long before you were ever born. And, uh, <laughs> and it's, it's sort of horrifying. It's like, oh, gee, I thought I was being original, but no. <laughs> but these things have to come back for every generation. I mean, it, I, uh, no. Frank Herbert started writing. I mean, Dune started, as I recall, as a series of ecological articles for a Seattle newspaper. Um, right. And, he got and, you know, and, so, and, the, and the tone and the, the framing of those things shifts. And so it does need to be sort of reborn. And, and I think that's one of, I think, science fiction's faults sometimes is that we say, oh, well, you know, Heinlein wrote X back in, you know, 19 whatever. And, uh, right. and so there's no need to write more, you know, stories for young adults now. And it's like, no, no, actually, that was great. He did what he did for that age group. But now, like, let's write some new stories for this age group now. Absolutely. And, it, you know, give, give people their touchstone stories, and those are going to be different. They're going to be framed differently, even if they've got some of the similar resonances. Um, no well, science fiction story is ever used up. <laughs> right. Well, science yeah, fiction yeah. idea. I'm beginning yeah. June might be used up. Mm. But. Anyway, well, thank you very, very much for joining us today, Paolo. It's been a great pleasure, um, and I hope maybe we'll get to talk to you again sometime soon about some other issues, maybe uh, have a chat about publishing and those kind of things. Yeah, yeah, that would be fun, actually. So I think we do that. And, and once again, congratulations on the uh, contract. That, that sort of thing, what happens with somebody like Canop, is good for everybody in the field, I believe. I hope so. I, 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 you know, it's interesting. Like, you know, I, I had so many people tell me along the way that science fiction doesn't sell. You know, science fiction doesn't sell. Yeah. Science fiction is dead. You can only write fantasy. Don't bother with science fiction. Um, and you sort of hope that, like, when when something like this happens, that it makes a whole bunch of people sort of sit up and look around and say, well, wait a second, maybe there is some kind of science fiction that sells. Maybe there are yeah. still, you know, roots <laughs> I think, through this. And, I think you're absolutely and, right. Yeah, so anyway. Well, well, certainly I think if you open the door to let people read it and don't make it look as though they're excluded from it, there's always that chance that you can get a lot of people to read the the basic stuff of science fiction, whether it's not robot spaceships or something else, but the basic idea, because we're intrinsically interested in the idea of what happens next. So, anyway, until anyway. next time, thank you very much, Paolo. And Gary, I will talk to you again next week. We'll talk again in a week. Okay. Thank you, Paolo. Okay, until Bye. then.